Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Thank you, John. Good morning, CBC family. All right. Um, so, uh, well, just as a reminder, we are continuing in our faithful series, Standing on the Promises of God. So 11 years ago, a couple big things happened in my life and Aaron's life. Uh, 11 years ago, we got married. Actually, 11 years ago, Friday. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's an applaud for God's grace that Aaron said yes. That's right. Um, but also, we set off on a journey to church plant. So we moved a little bit north uh, with a heart and passion to plant a church with really a focus on the unchurched and the de-churched. We had a really heart passion. The unchurched being those in the community that just have no history or no background with the church. They've never been part of a church family. But the de-churched, which maybe some of us are familiar with, are those who at some point they were attending church or had a history with the church, but disconnected or disassociated and were no longer a part of a church family. And that's where our hearts really went for. So in order to do that in the community uh, and build those relationships, I got a job at Starbucks, a local coffee shop. Uh, you know, you know Starbucks. Uh, and the express purpose I wanted to be there for was for building relationships. Building relationships with my coworkers, building relationships with the regulars. And as you can imagine, it was a great place to build those relationships. And we were really honest with why we were there. We're here to plant a church. Uh, we're here to talk about Jesus. And we asked a whole lot of questions for people. And we made some great friendships. So a few months into building some relationships with these unchurched and these de-churched really young adults, me and another buddy of mine decided, hey, we need to take these young adults out to dinner and really hear from them, listen to them. So let's give them a few questions ahead of time and let them know we want to hear their thoughts on these. So we did that, dinner on us. And here are some of the questions we gave them. We said, hey, we want to know what are your just overall impressions of Christianity in the church? And secondly, we want to know like, where do those impressions come from? Like what informs that view of the church in you? Thirdly, we asked them, what keeps you right now from attending or going to a church? And lastly, we asked him, where do you go for those deep, hard questions about life? Where do you run for those answers? And it was a beautifully rich time. It was an incredibly honest, heartfelt. I mean, those were people that Jesus loves, and we love them too. Uh, and my buddy and I took notes. So I want to give you guys some answers to that third question. 
It says, what keeps them from wanting to attend or visit a church? So here's some of the answers that they gave us to that question. Bad impressions of Christians I know. Every time I've gone, I've been made to feel bad or guilty. There was a false sense of community. When I went through my personal crisis, I was rejected and neglected by the church. Old biddies and their gossip. That's a quote. <laughs> Ceremony and tradition that never evolves. Sexism and exclusivity. You stand out when you walk in. Teaching on heaven and hell can be off-putting, hearing that there will be people we know in hell. One person who is not experienced is too authoritative. There's a disconnect between what they say they believe and their behavior. Other lifestyles are looked down upon. Science is looked down upon. And it may be one of my favorite answers from a guy named Hunter of what keeps him from coming to the church. He said, the smell. And I was both instantly confused and instantly understood exactly what he meant by that smell. And I asked him, and he talked about just his, this old musty church that his grandma used to take him to. So I walked away saying, we got to make sure our church doesn't smell. That's the thing. But there was one answer that really stuck out to me because it kind of, in my mind, served as like a cultural anthem for the moment. And I think it still kind of rings true out there today. When asked what kind of keeps you from wanting to come or checking out a church, one young lady uh, said this. She said, we were born with everything we need inside of us. So why go to hear about another way? We're born with everything we need inside of us. So why go and hear about another way? And the question is, is, is that really true? And I don't mean just to dismiss or bash that notion, but really quickly we know that that's not true. And what I mean by that is, like, advertisers know that that's not true. Like, the whole marketing narrative is, you aren't enough in yourself, but buy this thing I'm selling, and then you will be. You're close, but you need this. The advertisers know we're not enough inside ourselves. But even deeper than that, the addictions around us scream, we know we're not enough. There's brokenness in us and hurt that we're looking for medication. So whether those addictions are pornography or food or work or exercise or shopping or whatever, our addictions are driven by these internal brokenness that scream, we're in pain, we're not enough, and we need some hope and healing from somewhere. We know we're not enough. And yet, we still want to believe that we are. Like, like we still hold on to the promise that, that maybe we are born with everything we need. And so that's why we champion thoughts like, like you be you and, uh, you know, live your truth and follow your heart. Because we desperately want to believe the promise that inside of us is enough. But does the promise hold up? Well, today we're going to read a story that John opened up to us in the scripture of a man who had gotten to the end of himself, that when he looked inside at who he was and even what he accomplished, he found that the promises didn't deliver. And so he needed something more. And he turns to Jesus. And in this interaction with Jesus, this man discovers a new and better promise, not a promise that he was born with what he had and all that he needed already, but that there was a new birth, a better birth from above. And that was what he was longing for 
all along. So if you haven't turned already, go ahead and open up to John chapter 3, and we're going to look again at this story of Jesus and Nicodemus. So as you turn to John chapter 3, let's set some context. So it's early in the gospel. Obviously, Jesus is growing in popularity because of these supernatural miracles, these signs he's doing, but also the supernatural depth of insight in his teaching. So he's starting to draw followers, and, and, and people are, are you know, kind of giving him a lot of attention, including this man named Nicodemus. So from the verses 1 through 8 that John read just a minute ago, who is or who was Nicodemus? Well, we actually know quite a lot about him just from those first few verses. We know that Nicodemus was a, was a Jew, but even more than that, he was a Pharisee, which was a certain sect of Judaism that were really known for their strict devotion to God's law. Like, if you're familiar with the Gospels, yeah, they do get some bad press later on. But from on a surface level, these were really devoted, really faithful, really strict religious followers. You might even say as a Pharisee that Nicodemus would have looked like by outsiders and maybe even thought of himself as, as very moral and very religious and very observant and faithful. We also know about Nicodemus that he was what's called a ruler of the Jews. That not only as a Pharisee, he was part of the Sanhedrin, which was a group of about 70, sometimes 71 uh, guys that acted kind of as like a judicial ruling body over the Jews. So he was not only morally excellent as a Pharisee, but he was powerful. You might call him an influencer. He was an influencer in his day, excelling in his career as a professional Jew. And lastly, Jesus calls Nicodemus a teacher of Israel. Because in his devotion as a Pharisee, he was incredibly learned, incredibly knowledgeable in his understanding of God's word in the Torah. So who was Nicodemus? Well, he was a morally faithful, obedient, powerful, and influential leader who's deeply versed in the scripture. But that's who Nicodemus was. We also see in this passage what Nicodemus was. He was lacking. All those accolades, all those things, but something inside of him was missing. He was lacking, but he was also looking, searching. There's a, a sense of humility and curiosity where he said he couldn't find those answers within himself of what he was missing and what he was lacking, so he went looking and came to Jesus. But not only was he lacking and not only was he looking, we know that Nicodemus was afraid. He comes to Jesus under the cover and darkness of night. Why was he afraid? Because even then Nicodemus knew that coming to Jesus was risky. That his reputation, his identity, even what he had built his life upon was at stake by engaging in this new miracle working rabbi. So he comes to Jesus at night and offers this like kind of polite compliment to Jesus, which, which was true. You know, Jesus, you, you must be from God. You look at all the great things you're doing. And what does Jesus do? He cuts right to the heart of the matter. And in verse 3, he looks at Nicodemus lovingly but squarely in his eyes and says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What in the world? <laughs> what kind of response is that? You know, what is Jesus talking about? Why would he respond to Nicodemus like that? And what promise is laden within those words that Jesus knew it was exactly what Nicodemus and us in this room today and online needed 
to hear. So let's walk through this exchange of Jesus and Nicodemus together and do our best in our short little time to try to understand the promise of God that because he was born below, we can be born above. So to do that, we're actually going to ask four questions about this exchange. We're going to, about being born again, born above. We're going to ask, what does it mean to be born again? How does it happen? Who is it for? And what does it look like? So firstly, what does it mean to be born again? So before we actually jump into the the gospel and God's word in John chapter 3, we have to address the issue of what born again means in our culture today. Because being called born again, a born again Christian, is actually not something that's like familiar or regularly stated throughout church history. It's actually a fairly new label in our cultural lexicon. So its actual popularity in the scene can be traced back to sometime around the mid-70s uh, when Jimmy Carter and his presidential campaign. Uh, some of you remember that. I don't. I was born in 81. Um, but, I, but I've been told about a man named Jimmy Carter. Um, But in the mid-70s, we know he was, in his appeal to kind of Christian voters, I think he genuinely was sharing. He described himself as a born-again Christian, taken from this passage in Scripture. But then, as tends to happen, when biblical terms and definitions and the attachment drifts from the Bible and Jesus, but then goes over to interest groups and political affiliations like the moral majority and the religious right, that these terms begin to be less defined biblically and more defined by the cultural, political ideology they're attached to. So we've actually even seen that currently here recently in the word evangelical. That these words in the broader culture's understanding are actually more closely aligned with political ideologies than the biblical origins from Jesus where they came. And so, as born again became less about the transformational life of a follower of Christ and more about what it means uh, from someone's political affiliations and cultural value structures, it actually became a negative and derogatory term for a lot of people. Polls begin showing that people, when asked if they wanted somebody who was identified as born again to move in next door, they would say no. Because born again wasn't associated with aspects of Jesus that would actually make somebody a good neighbor, like kindness and service and humility and sacrifice and generosity and love, but rather self-righteousness, overly judgmental, and more about advocating for political causes than loving and serving their neighbors. So to be honest... The descriptions of terms like born again and even evangelicals that are known for out there in the culture, those definitions, sound a lot like that list from my friends on reasons why they don't want to come to church. So why did I just go through that and explain that? Well, that's because the moment that we live in, talking about being born again is packed with so much baggage. We need to start over. We need to look again at what it means here in God's word and not what the world around us tells us that it means. So let's go back here. Chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, let's look at that phrase, born again. 
Because that word actually in the Greek, that word for again, like a lot of words in Greek, is like really layered with meaning and it can actually be really difficult to translate into English. So that, that word uh, again is anothen, which it can mean like some sequential time-based action. So again, one thing happens and then something else happens later. So when you see born anothen, it can be translated born again, something in time that happens. But also... Anothen can mean from above or from the top, like positionally. So you see that actually later in verse 31 when it's translated above. You see it in John 19, 11, where Jesus talks about authority comes from above. And maybe a verse you might be familiar with, James 1, 17, where James tells us every good and perfect gift is anothen from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So, which translation is right? Born again or born from above? Well, yes. <laughs> they kind of both are. If I had to choose and lean one way, just based on the description that we'll see here in a little bit of how Jesus talks about this new birth, I would lean more towards born from above. But I think for the sake today, if we can kind of come to consensus, why don't we think about it in terms of born again from above? Right? That way everybody's happy. See? Blessed are the peacemakers. Right? It's like, I make everybody happy. But really, that, that is important. Because as we dive in deeper to understanding what this new birth is, actually both components are important. That, that this new birth is something that happens to us. It's an event that happens in time. It's something that happens again. But it also is a new birth that comes from somewhere, from above. So born again from above is actually a really great way to look at it. So, Going back to our text here, Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you want to see God's kingdom, you must be born again from above. And this, and Jesus answers, or sorry, Nicodemus answers it like you and I might answer, like, born again from, what are you talking about? Like, I, I gotta, like, go back into a womb and be born again like I was born the first time? Like, how does that work? And this is where Jesus starts to pull back the curtain and help explain the deep richness and beauty and, yes, difficulty of understanding exactly what this new birth from above is. And the first thing he has to tell Nicodemus is, it doesn't come from where you think it comes. So look at me in, in Jesus' response in verse 5. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So what is Jesus saying here in his response? He's saying a lot. Actually, books and books have been written on it. But I think simply we, are, we see Jesus trying to lovingly correct Nicodemus. He's saying Nicodemus heard this like born-again thought, and he's thinking immediately to his, his physical, biological birth. And Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, you need another category of birth. It's not a physical birth that comes from people below, but this is a spiritual birth that only comes from God above. He says that which is born of flesh is flesh. It's another way of saying kind of in simple terms, hey, when people come together, they make people. When cats come together, they make cats. When an orange tree drops an orange seed, it makes an orange tree. Like flesh makes flesh. The world makes the things of this world, the things of the spirit. They don't come from you. They don't come from this world. This is a spiritual birth that comes from above, from God, the Spirit. 
Jesus says, that which is born of the Spirit is, is spirit. Jesus is setting the table for Nicodemus about this new birth from above to say, what I'm going to tell you about, you can't find here. Not in yourself, not in the world. It's something that is a work of God in you, and only God can bring it about in you. And then Jesus continues in verses 7 and 8. He says this, he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So here we have Jesus. Jesus is the most incredible teacher the world has ever known. And he does something actually really profound and beautiful here. He takes this truth and he packages it in some fun, creative wordplay. What do I mean by that is, so Jesus tells him here, he says, hey, Nicodemus, there is an invisibility and a mystery to this new birth from above by God's spirit. And it's like the wind. The word for wind in Greek is pneuma which sometimes even gets translated as breath, pneuma. The word for spirit in, in Greek is pneuma. It's the same word. Pneuma can be wind, breath, spirit. So Jesus is saying here, Nicodemus, you look at the wind, the pneuma, and you, you don't really understand it. It's a mystery of how it works and where it goes. And, and although you don't really see it, you can experience it, and you can even see the effects of it as it shakes through the trees and makes sound. And if the wind, that pneuma, can be that mysterious, don't be surprised that as something as wondrously profound as the pneuma, the Spirit of God, giving you new birth, don't be surprised that that is even more mysterious. Because just like the wind, this work of God in the lives of people is invisible. It's mysterious and it's beyond our complete understanding, but like the wind, when it comes, you can see its effects. It's like the sound of wind shaking the trees. So Jesus opens up, first thing first, telling Nicodemus, you must be born again from above, and this new birth is not from you or this world, but is an act of God upon you. And while it's invisible and mysterious, you will see it moving and working in you. So we fully clear and understand what Jesus was talking about with this whole new birth thing? No? Good. Neither was Nicodemus. He's like, well, I don't get it. It's like, what's going on here? He's still confused, and if we are too, that's okay. But here in this moment, we can pause, because actually, in this room, we have something that Nicodemus didn't have in that moment. You and I can kind of hit pause in this moment, in this conversation, and we can pull back, because we can see how this conversation fits into the whole story of the Gospels. Not just the Gospel of John, but even the other Gospel writers and the New Testament letters, the story of Jesus' redemption. Because Jesus is using a specific phrase here about new birth and new birth from above. And even later on in this section, you know, we see kingdom of God and seeing and entering the kingdom of God. He'll even say eternal life and what that means. And he kind of uses these terms kind of interchangeably. And again, as we pull back and we see the story of God, we see words like uh, the gospel and redemption and new life and resurrection and adoption into God's family and all that in words like salvation. So all these different terms kind of are like different little like stitch works, creating this beautiful tapestry, this beautiful description of what? Of the work of God in his coming and rescuing of his beloved fallen children. And when these people are saved or adopted or born again or made new or resurrected, all those things talk about something 
invisible, something spiritual that happens inside of us. Some theologians will call that term regeneration. Re being, again, generation, or we get like Genesis, like beginning. Again, beginning, beginning, again, new life, a new birth from above. Jesus is drawing Nicodemus in this moment and drawing us to using the language of new birth and kingdom and eternal life to pull him into the reality of the work of God in saving his people. And that's really important, I think, that we can kind of see that in this text now. We can kind of understand a little bit deeper what Jesus was talking about, even deeper than Nicodemus. But we can see why when, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and gives him this kind of polite introduction, we see why Jesus cuts to the heart. We see why Jesus looks at this kind of moral, religious, upstanding, powerful leader who's lacking and looking and broken, and he cuts straight to the heart and says, I need to talk to you about new life. Why? Because that's the most important thing that matters. Most important thing that matters for you, Nicodemus, most important thing that matters for us in this room today. So at this moment, if that is the most important thing, a natural question should pop up in our minds to say, why does Nicodemus or any of us really need to be born again from above? Why? Why do we need this new birth? Well, Jesus is actually going to answer that. If you jump down with me, look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus is again talking to Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verse 19. Jesus says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus tells Nicodemus that this light that has come into this dark world is him, is Jesus. John uses the same analogy of Jesus as the light coming into the world and the opening of this gospel in John chapter 1. That Jesus is the light come into the world. Jesus is God in flesh. God born into this world. Colossians 2.9 says, The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Jesus. And the light that Jesus shines is the light of the very nature of the holiness of of God. Now, holiness means set apart, completely distinct, completely other from everything else, specifically in perfect, complete, utter moral goodness and righteousness. That through and through, in all he is and all he does, there's no hint of darkness or evil in God, but only perfect goodness. And Jesus is the light of that holiness into this world. And Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus, by contrast, that this world that he's coming into is not light, but full of darkness and evil. And I think most of us probably wouldn't argue that if we look around out there, we see the evil and darkness in the world. We scroll social media feeds, we turn on the news, and all day, every day, we see the reality of this darkness and evil in the world around us. We see it in big ways from like wars and genocides and the, the global atrocities. But we can also see it in the oppression and racism, the sexual, emotional, spiritual, physical abuses that seem to plague our world. 
And we can see it in the injustices and the corruption and power. We see it in the violence of mass shootings, the lying and cheating in politics and corporate greed and everywhere else and on and on. Darkness is everywhere. But Jesus is saying here and even later throughout his word that we aren't seeing things truly clearly until it's not just darkness and evil out there, but we see the darkness and evil in here. When I look in the mirror, it's my self-centered bending my world around myself and my desires. And it shows itself in my lusts of using people and bending them to my needs. It's in my greed and my protecting and serving myself and my interest above others. It's in my hateful and harsh words, both spoken and thought. It's in my condemnation and judgment of others who think and act and live differently than me. Again, on and on in a thousand different ways that darkness and that evil are not just out there, but in here. It's for me. It's for you. It's for everyone. And the good news, it gets worse. Because it's not just darkness and evil that are found in those classically bad things we do. But it's so dark and so evil that even our good deeds are plagued with darkness. Let me give you three quick examples. So you think about the good deeds we do. We sacrifice for others. We volunteer. We give to charity. We do whatever. And if we're doing, and when we're doing those things, deep down, deep down, sometimes we can't even feel it or see it. There's a voice inside of us when we do those things that not only says, dude, you're good. No, not only says you're good, it says, Mike, you're not just good, you're better. You're better than them. And them could be whoever. Mike, you're better than them. Those who don't sacrifice and serve as much as you do, those who aren't as committed to the church as you are, you're doing these things, you know what, you're better. Or you know what, I do these things and I live this way and I'm better than them, and them, those liberals, I'm better. Those conservatives, those hateful people, those this, those that, those whoever it is, we can do good works that are actually evil works masquerading as good deeds. Or if it's not that way, maybe we do good deeds and it's not to exalt ourselves in some self-righteousness, but maybe it's actually good deeds to control people. I can tell you this much. One of the most hurtful things that's happened to me in my life is I had a conversation with someone who is really, really close to me. And in that conversation, they laid into me the deepest guilt trip I'd ever received. And in essence, the guilt trip was they pulled out this laundry list of everything they've ever done for me, every way they've served me, every kindness they've shown to me. And they pretty much said, and you haven't done enough for me. You haven't done anywhere near what I've done for you. And in that moment, I realized those good deeds and acts of love they did for me were not acts of loves for me. They were power plays and acts of selfishness that they were doing to put me underneath their control. And their acts of good were masquerading as, or sorry, they were acts of evil masquerading as acts of good. So whether it's self-exalting or maybe it's a power play, but maybe there's one other way that you might be doing good deeds laced with darkness. Maybe you have looked in the mirror. You've looked in the mirror and you've seen the darkness and the brokenness and the evil in you. You've seen the ways that your words have hurt people and your actions have caused pain. You know the times you took the cowardly way out, the selfish way out. 
And in that brokenness and in that guilt and that shame, maybe you ran to some of those aforementioned addictions to try and make yourself feel better or get distracted like pornography or food or, or work or exercise or, and, and none of that satisfied. So to deal with that brokenness and guilt, you say, okay, I'm going to turn to charity. I'm going to turn to religion. I'm going to be the nice guy. I'm going to do nice things. I'm going to sacrifice because I'm trying to balance the broken scales that are in my heart. If I can do enough good and do enough right and do enough acts of love, then maybe I'll balance the scales of that guilt and shame I feel. And so those acts of love, those service, the things you do for the church, for other people, for organizations are not really good acts done to love them. They're good acts done to love yourself, to fix yourself. They're self-centered acts of darkness masquerading as good. I told you it gets worse. It's not just the darkness we see in our bad deeds. The darkness is so dark, it even invades our good deeds. So if I could go back to years ago, to that dinner, to that friend of mine who said, we were born with everything we need inside of us. Why do I need another way? I believe Jesus would look lovingly at that person and say, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. That is a lie that you have everything you need. Because the truth is, we were not born with everything we need. We were born and all we have is need. A need for redemption, a need for light, a need for holiness, a need for atonement, a need for healing, a need for rescue, a need for salvation, a need for a new birth. So Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he looks at us today and says, our only hope for that emptiness, that guilt, that darkness in us, we must be born again from above. So how? How does it happen? How does this new birth from above happen? So many of us are familiar with probably the most famous passage in the Bible. It's in this text, John 3.16, right? How many of you guys don't look? No, John 3.15. <laughs> no, John 3.16 obviously is in part of this story. So to understand John 3.16 and understand how this new birth happens, I actually want to look at John 3.14 through 17. So read with me John 3.16, uh, starting, I'm sorry, John 3, starting verse 14. So Jesus or so Nicodemus saying, how does this happen? How does this new birth happen? I don't understand. And Jesus is going to tell him. He says, Nicodemus, listen to me. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus references this story from the Old Testament that a Pharisee and teacher of the law like Nicodemus would be super familiar with. It comes from Numbers chapter 21. The, people of, uh, the Hebrew people have been set free from slavery in Egypt, but they're wandering in the wilderness, and they start complaining and groaning and sinning against God. And in God's loving, holy discipline, he sends these fiery serpents among them, these snakes. And a lot of people get bit, and they get bit, and they die from the venom. And so when they repent before God, and they go to Moses, and they say, uh, Moses, pray to God that he would take away these venomous snakes from us. Moses prays, and God says, Moses, this is what I want you to do. 
I want you to craft a bronze serpent. I want you to put it up on this huge pole and stick it up in the midst of the people. That way when they're bit and they're suffering and they're hurting and they're dying, they look up at that serpent on the pole and they will live. Put that serpent on the pole up and when they're bit, they're not going to look to try and heal themselves. They're not going to get in a holy huddle and try and fix themselves. When they're bit, they will look to the serpent and live. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, that story was about him, Jesus, and the new birth. That darkness and evil in us is a poison more deadly than snake venom, and that we've all been bit. And our hope isn't looking to ourselves or looking in a, a holy huddle, but to turn our eyes, turn our hope, and look up to God in faith. And just like the serpent, that bronze serpent was raised, Jesus was going to be raised and lifted up. But not on a long pole in the wilderness. Jesus was going to be raised on the cross of Calvary. Not to cure us from a poison to our body, but from the very poison of sin that runs in our souls, that darkness and evil. And if we look up to Jesus, we will live. John 3.16 that we know so well. For God so loved the world that dark and evil and God-denying and God-running and God-mocking and God-hating world, he loved it so much that he gave his only son. And what does it mean that he gave? Well, at least a couple ways. Firstly, it's simply that Jesus came the eternal, all-glorious, divine Son of God came to this dark, evil world in flesh. God literally gave us Jesus in physical flesh by sending him to be born into this world. But that's not all. God gave us his Son on the cross, gave him up to death, that the holy light of the world, Jesus, was lifted up high on the cross and took upon himself up there God's holy Justice against all the darkness and all the evil and all the sins of the world, the darkness out there and the darkness in here. And Jesus bore on the cross all the guilt and curse of sin on himself that day, and he traded places with us. He took the cross we deserve and gave us his record of holiness that we didn't deserve. Our darkness on him, his light on us, our guilt and our curse and our darkness and evil fully paid for in him. His death is our life. His death is our birth. That whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. How does this new life happen? It happens because of what Jesus accomplished for us. The spirit opening us to believe it, to trust it, to believe that the salvation that our hearts long for, the new life and new beginning, is only because of what Jesus did. His accomplishments, not ours. And it's the Spirit's work in us to believe, not us. So this new life comes to us by faith. We receive it by grace. It's not earned. It's not achieved. It's received. So I want you to think about how much effort and thought you put into the planning of your physical birth. How much effort did you put into that process? Nothing. Your physical birth. You weren't born because you proved yourself worthy to be born. You weren't born because you worked hard enough and eventually said, okay, you can be born. You brought nothing to your birth 
in this world, you bring nothing to your salvation and your spiritual birth. It is only and always what the Son has done for you. All you do, stop trusting yourself, stop trusting this world, and trust Him. Believe that this one who was born from below lived the perfect sinless light of life you and I should have lived. And he took the cross of our sin and God's wrath that we should have taken. And he rose again for us to prove that his victory was assured and our new life was real. And the spirit opens us up to believe and confess and receive that new birth by grace, by faith. That's how this new birth happens. Just like looking up to the snake in the wilderness. Lift your eyes and off yourself, off this world, and look to Jesus above. Another way of saying it is, friends, when it comes to this new birth, all you and I bring to God is need. But need is all you need. Jesus takes care of the rest. Give yourself to Jesus now, today. Be born again today, born from above, because he was born from below, because he came. He was born from below. His life and death and resurrection, we can be born from above. So the last two questions really quick. This new birth that Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus and all of us, honestly, who's it for? Who really needs this new birth? Now, let me, if I ask you a question, if I was going to come to you and say, think about your world, think about your social circles, who in your life would you say is the number one person that needs a do-over in life, needs a start-over? Who's the biggest mess, the biggest failure? Is it somebody you know that's an addict or somebody that's failed every job or been fired a hundred times? Is it somebody that can't get their act together? Somebody that's just like addicted to all the, you know, trappings and the carnality of this world that's just throwing their life in the garbage? Surely that's the person that needs a do-over and that's need to start over. I want you to hear this church family because this is what's going to hit us home between the eyes. I want you to understand with me the profundity of why Jesus has the conversation of the new birth with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the moral, the religious, the powerful, the influential, the put together, the biblically literate scholar of God's word. If anyone has his ticket punched to the kingdom of God, surely it's Nicodemus, right? Look at him. Surely he made the cut. And yet, this is the one. Jesus looks squarely into his eyes and says, you, you, Nicodemus, you must be born again from above. So what does this mean for us, specifically those of us in here that call ourselves Christians, who are faithful church attenders, deep Bible scholars, active volunteers in ministry? Jesus is crying to us, danger, danger, danger. What he's saying here is, we have to realize that God does not love and accept us because we're Christians. God does not love us and accept us because we've turned our lives around and found religion. God does not love us because we never miss a Sunday or we take incredible sermon notes or we can quote the Greek. No. God loves us because God loves us. It's an act of undeserved grace. But if we think that God loves us and accepts us because of our Christianity, 
or the religious activities we do or the positions at church we've hold, we hold or we've held or because we, we give so much or serve so much or do so much, we are still operating in a works-based salvation centered around us saving ourselves. If that's us, we need to be born again today, right now. If that's you, if you've been attending church for weeks or years or decades, thinking that somehow when God looks at you, he loves you because of what you give him with your church service, you think you're born with everything you need. And you think that what you do is the reason that you were born again. But no, God loves us by grace and undeserved mercy, even the moral religious put together. So here's what I want to say. Who is a new birth for? Everyone. The put together and the falling apart, the self-righteous do-gooder and the unrighteous moral wreck. Those who spent their life running from God in carnality and those who spent their, God running, spent their life running from God in church, in religious performance and self-glorifying behaviors. The, the new birth is for everyone. For God so loved the world. So believe. Lastly, what does it look like? What does it look like when this new birth comes upon us? Remember Jesus using that wind analogy saying, it's this invisible work, but just like the wind shaking the trees, you can see it in you. What does that look like? And I want to answer the question of what it looks like for the spirit to move, to shake the trees of our lives by telling you the story of one man and close with a story. And this man's name is Nicodemus. John brings up Nicodemus three times in his gospel. The first time we see here in John chapter three, when this put together, maybe even potentially self-righteous moral man who's longing and broken comes to Jesus, but he questions him in secret. But he keeps with Jesus and by chapter seven, when the other rulers are trying to arrest and imprison Jesus, Nicodemus steps up and goes from questioning Jesus privately to defending him in public. These trees are shaken in Nicodemus. The spirit is moving. And you go to John chapter 19. When Jesus, the light of the world, has been crucified upon that cross as a heretic and a blasphemer, and they pull him off the cross dead. There are two men that say, I'm with him. I'll take care of that body and give him and burial the honor he deserves. Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus. He says, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not a ruler of the Jews. I'm not a put together moral perfectionist. I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. And that was the dead Jesus. trees shaken like a hurricane. The Spirit of God moving in Nicodemus. Because now Nicodemus was not only being born again from above, he was looking to his salvation from above, not to himself from Jesus. And his life was being changed to live for things above, not in fear about what people will think about him or trying to build my little kingdoms and power here. But now I'm part of that kingdom. And I live for that glory. And I seek things above now. My life has been changed. The Spirit has come in me. The new birth has happened and my trees are shaken. I can't imagine when the Jesus that he buried not long later would come and find him and those same eyes that locked into him years ago in that dark night, years ago and told that scared man, you must be born again. Those resurrected eyes looking at Nicodemus saying, see, 
I told you. Can you imagine? So friends here today, I got to ask you, whether this is your first time hearing about Jesus or you've been sitting in churches for 50 years, have you been born again from above? Do you still think that God is somehow impressed with us with what we bring to the table? Or do we trust the beauty and truth of the love and grace of our Savior Jesus that all we bring is need and need is all we need? And we say, my life, my hope, my security, the answer to that question doesn't contain the word I. All it is is he. He was born below. He lived the life I should have lived. He took the cross I should have taken. He rose again to conquer me. He moved in my heart to believe. He, he, he. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up today. And as they're coming up, I want us to wrestle with those questions. And I don't mean any shame on you. Please hear this. If you've been sitting in church services for years, but something, the trees are shaking in you right now, and you say, I don't know if I've ever been really born again. I found religion. I like church. I try to do my best, but I don't know if I've been born again. Today is the day to be born again. Or if this is the first time you've ever heard this hope, today is the day to be born again. We're going to sing a song. We're going to play it. And it's going to be time for you to reflect. Press into Jesus right now and ask, is he your only hope? And if you want to talk, if you want to pray, or you know you need to be born again today, Milt's going to join me up here. Any deacons, elders can join us up up here. We would love to talk with you. We would love to pray with you during the song, after the service, whenever it is, come here. But don't let your pride get in the way of being born again today. Come talk to us. Come pray with us. Lift your eyes above to Jesus and be born again today. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, For God so loved the world, he sent you to be born from below so we could be born from above. And that you took the cross of our sin and shame and darkness and evil so that we would come and know that our future, our hope, our redemption, our wholeness is secure. And you rose again to new life to prove it. Lord, I pray today in this room right now or those that are watching it online, if there's anybody right now that feels their trees shaken, feels you spirit stirring in their heart to say, I need to be born again. I need to stop trusting myself, trusting in my religion, trusting in the things that I've done my, and built my life upon. I need to trust Jesus alone and be born again today that you would stir in them to do that now. With all their doubts, with all their fears, with all their questions, with any uncertainties that they would just trust, just take that step and trust and bring about new life today. Jesus, we can't do it. Only you can. But we know you want to. So Spirit, we ask that you would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen.